Shalom and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Menachem Liptek. Today is the sixth and final shir on Parshat B'Shalach. As we conclude the events of the Mana with the last six verses of chapter 16, then in the first seven verses of chapter 17, we will discuss the events in Rifidim, where once again God leads the nation to a site where there's no water, how Amisrael complains, and how those events eventually will lead Amisrael to Mount Sinai. And finally, how those events in Rifidim can help us understand the eternal law to remember Amalek and what is so evil about their behavior. Before we begin the study from verse 31, just a short comment about what we studied yesterday and the date that Chumash gave us in chapter 16 for when the manna began to fall. Recall that chapter 16 began on the 15th day of the second month, or what we would call the 15th day of Iyar. And the manna fell the next morning, which means the very first day the manna fell in Jewish history was the 16th of Iyar. And then we were commanded for six days to collect it. And on that sixth day, take a double portion. And the seventh day would be the very first Shabbat in Jewish history. Therefore, if you do the calculation, the very first Shabbat in Jewish history is the 22nd day of Iyar. According to what we read yesterday, many members of Amisur did not keep that Shabbat. They went out to collect, but they did not find. We can assume that by the next week, they learned their lesson. And the first Shabbat that Amisur kept would have been now the 29th of Iyar. And then the next Shabbat would be the 36th of Iyar. Well, there is no 36th of Iyar. We are now in the month of Sivan. And the rabbis in Masechet Shabbat reach a very logical conclusion that the Torah was given on Shabbat. And the next Shabbat that Am Yisrael kept was the day of Matan Torah. Now, if Iyar was a 29-day month, then the Torah would have been given on the 7th of Sivan. And if Iyar was a 30-day month, the Torah would have been given on the 6th of Sivan. And that is why the rabbis argue what day was the day the Torah was given. Either day could have been the day of Matan Torah, but everyone agrees the Torah was given on Shabbat. Now, that is not just a technicality that the Torah is given on Shabbat, because Shabbat not only reminds us that God created, but it also reminds Amisrael that we were chosen to serve him. If you recall in chapter 31 of Sefer Shemot, after the laws of the Mishkan, even though we're commanded to construct the Mishkan, we have a special commandment in verse 13, God tells Moshe to tell the people, Make sure to keep my Shabbat, because it is a sign between me and you, for all generations, that you should know that I am the God who separated you to serve you. And therefore Shabbat is not only a reminder that God created, it is also a reminder that God chose us to serve him, and that could explain why Shabbat is in the Ten Commandments. If the Ten Commandments is a covenant between God and His people, then our weekly reminder that God chose us to serve Him will be by keeping Shabbat. Therefore, we see that the very story of the manna relates to the very basic concept of Shabbat and a Jewish week. And this can help us understand why when we collect our harvest for those two months in the spring and early summer, we're commanded not only to count the days, but to count the weeks. If the Omer is supposed to remind us that even though we're working the field, we have to treat the grain that we collect as though it is a miracle from God. The reason why we specifically count weeks is again to remember the concept of a Jewish week that began here with the story of the Omer. This also explains why the rabbis understand that counting the Omer for seven weeks is not only a commandment relating to celebrating our grain harvest, but it also reminds us of how we need to prepare for Mount Sinai. And if the man experience was Laman Anasenohe Lech Batorati Imlo to test them and get them ready, will they follow my Torah or not? 
if the man experience prepares Am Yisrael for receiving the Torah at Har Sinai, it's not surprising that the rabbis understand that the seven weeks of counting the Omer in our Jewish calendar is also preparation for receiving the Torah at Har Sinai, the historical event that we commemorate on Shavuot as well. One last comment, that if Shavuot is not just a grain harvest holiday, but also the day of Matan Torah, the day we receive the Torah, we actually find an event at the very end of Chumash, in Sefer Devarim, in Parsha Ve'elech, in chapter 31, that once every seven years, the nation of Israel gathers together and relives the events of Mount Sinai. The mitzvah is called Hakel, and in chapter 31 in Devarim, we're commanded that once every seven years, at the end of the Shemitah cycle, the entire nation gathers and reads the Torah in public in order that we learn to fear God and remember His laws and teach that to our children. Now, what is the connection between the laws of Hakel and the Shemitah cycle? It could be just a technical idea of seven years, but if we take the events that we studied in the Mana, there may be a very logical reason why the laws of Shemitah relate to the laws of Hakel and gathering the nation to remember Mount Sinai. If we wanted to relive the events of Mount Sinai, then the best place to go to do that would be to go to the desert in Mount Sinai. But if you follow the Ramban's explanation about the Mishkan, the nation of Israel never leaves Mount Sinai. We take Mount Sinai with us through the agency of the Mishkan. The Mishkan, the tabernacle, becomes a mini Mount Sinai and remains with the Jewish nation as we travel. Then when Am Yisrael settles into their land, the Mishkan becomes permanent in Yerushalayim, HaMakom HaShiv, Har Hashem, L'Shaken Shmosham, the place that God will choose to make His name known. And the place that we celebrate, Hakel, the place that we gather to read the Torah in public, will be in Bamakom HaShiv, Har Hashem, in Yerushalayim, at the Beit HaMikdash. Now we need to recreate the Mana experience in preparation for receiving the Torah. I would like to suggest that the laws of Shemitah create an environment in the land of Israel, that is very similar to the man experience in the desert, and it could be in preparation for Hakel. How would that work? During the Shemitah year, the produce does not belong to the owner. It's hefker, it's open for everyone. But there's a caveat. Even though there's produce everywhere, no one is allowed to collect more than enough food for one day from the open produce during the Shemitah year. It's a mitzvah to eat. You're supposed to eat the fruit of the land, but you can only take as much food as you need for the day. Realistically speaking, in the land of Israel, the time of year where most of the produce is grown and ready now for harvesting is in the summer months, right before the holiday of Sukkot at the end of the Shemitah year. And therefore, during the summer months before Hakel, we find a plenty of food throughout the land, but everyone has lots of food surrounding them, but they can only take as much food as they need one day at a time. And if that's correct, then the laws of Shemitah might be creating that environment that relives the desert experience of the manna in preparation for Matan Torah, as we saw in yesterday's share. One final comment is that it might be the reason why the Torah's opening line, when it introduces the laws of Shemitah and Sefer Vayikra and Parshat Bahar, is a strange opening verse that God gave these laws, Bahar Sinai. Why are specifically the laws of Shemitah introduced with the phrase Bahar Sinai? It could be to allude to this connection between the laws of Shemitah and preparation for the Torah at Mount Sinai. So with this in mind, let's continue now our study of Parshat B'Shalach, we are in chapter 16, verse 31. The house of Israel called the name of this substance that they're eating, Man. Now, translating this sentence is very difficult. Zeragad, we don't know what that is. The commentators raise different possibilities. It seems to be a round-shaped type of lentil or bean. 
but the manna was white, and it tasted like a honey wafer. Pasuk Lamed Bet, Vayemur Moshe, Zeh Adavar Asher Tziva Adonai, Meloho Omer Mimenu, Lemishmer Lodorotechem, Leman Yiru Etalechem, Asher Heachalti Etchem Bamidbar, Potzi Otam Meretz Mitzrayim. We discussed this first in yesterday's shir. Moshe told the people, this is what God commanded me, take a complete omer of this manna for safekeeping for all generations in order that everyone will see for all future generations this bread or this food which I fed you in the desert when I took you out of Egypt. Therefore, verse 33, Pasuk Lamed Gimel, Vayomer Moshe el Aaron. Moshe commands Aaron, Chach tzinsenet take a container, I think this would be a closed container, and put in that container a complete Omer of Man. We explained yesterday that if the Omer is the name of the utensil that was used to scoop up the Man, then fill up a full container of Mana. Leave it in front of God, which means in front of the Aaron in the Kodesh Kodeshim, for safekeeping for all generations. Just as God commanded Moshe, Aaron placed it in front of the Aron Ha'idut, which is the holy ark that held the tablets of the covenant, there for safekeeping for all generations. Now, why specifically is the manna going to be in front of the ark of the covenant that reminds us of our connection to God? Based on our opening remarks, this would make a lot of sense. If the ark of the covenant reminds us of the covenant that we are chosen to be God's people forever, but being God's people forever requires preparation and proper behavior, then having the manna as another symbol in front of the Ark of the Covenant could be an eternal reminder not only that God can do miracles, but how we have to treat nature as a miracle. And in order to be God's people, we need to be prepared. And the way we prepare is by how we treat our fellow man. So it could be that the educational messages of this desert seminar that we studied in Parsha Shalach may be represented by the manna. And therefore, the manna has to be placed in front of the Ark of the Covenant for all generations. Pasuk Lamed Hay, verse 35. The nation of Israel ate this manna for 40 years until they arrived into the land that they would settle. The manna they ate until they arrived at the edge of Eretz Canaan. As we learn in Sefer Yeshua, the manna stopped after Yeshua crosses the Jordan River. As all the commentators point out, these are verses that were recorded later after the Mishkan was built, and most likely Moshe added them when he finishes the Torah in the 40th year and gives it over to Sheba Levi, these are endnotes or footnote type of comments that conclude the story. And one final comment that we talked about in yesterday's year, verse 36, the Omer, either the measure of the Omer or the size of the utensil, was a tenth of an ephah. A tenth of an ephah, which is also known as Nisaron, seems to be the amount of grain or the dry measure that would give a person enough food to survive for one day. Now we begin chapter 17, Perak Zayim, Pasuk Aleph, the first verse. Vayisu kol adat b'nei Yisrael b'midbar sin l'maseihem api Adonai, vayachnu b'rfidim ve'ein mayim lishtot ha'am. The entire congregation of Israel travels from Midbar Sin on their journey according to God, and they camped in Rfidim, and there's no water for the people to drink. Now, many commentators note that if we compare the story of the journey here in Sefer Shemot to the story of the journey in Parshat Masay, we see that several stops on the way are missed. So they explain that the topic here is not everywhere we travel to, but rather all the events and the complaints of Am Yisrael on their journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. The detailed version of exactly where they stopped 
that we find in the book of Amidbar in Parshat Maseh. But here the topic is the complaints, and therefore we don't need to mention every place they stopped at. We only mention the places where significant events happened on that journey. So again, God brings them to a place where there's no water, I think expecting them to complain. But let's see now how they complain. Pasuk Bet, verse 2, By Yarev Ha'ami Moshe, the people now complain and quarrel with Moshe, and they say to him, Give us water so we can drink. Moshe tells him, Why are you arguing with me? Why are you testing God? It seems like Moshe expected them to wait and be patient and have faith that God will provide for them. Just like God provided them with food, with the manna, they should be patient and be sure that God will give them water. The problem is, it seems like water doesn't come. Verse 3, The people there become thirsty for water. The people now return and complain to Moshe Rabbeinu, who told them to wait, but how long can they wait for? They're accusing Moshe again of taking them out of Egypt to kill them and their children and their cattle in the desert. We go back to the same complaint that the people had before crossing of the Red Sea. They think they are on a death march, that God wants them all dead. And Moshe is trying to educate them and explain to them that these are difficult situations that they're in, but God's doing this to train them to get them ready to be his people. This idea of a training experience, Moshe Rabbeinu actually says explicitly in the book of Devarim, in chapter 8, when he says to remember your 40 years in the desert, not only does he point out that I gave you manna during those 40 years, he also compares the way God treated you in the desert was the way that a father treats his son trying to train him. There in chapter 8, verse 5, Moshe tells them that God is disciplining you just like a man disciplines his son. Therefore, Moshe is telling the people, take these experiences as difficult ones that you're supposed to learn from. At this point, Moshe can't tell them to wait. Now he turns to God in prayer and demands a solution. Pasuk Dalit, verse 4, Vayitzak Moshe el Adonai lemor, od ma'at uskaluni. Moshe cries out to God and says, What can I do for this people? In a short time, they're going to stone me. God now will give him a solution that he wanted all along. Pasuk verse 5. Walk in front of the people. I want them all to see you as you pass by. And take with you some of the elders of Israel. And take with you the staff that you hit the Nile River with. Take in your hand and walk. Notice that God is telling Moshe to take specifically the staff that he used to hit the Nile River. Now in Egypt, the Nile River was a source of water that everyone drank from. God wants Har Sinai now to be the source of water. And God is going to tell Moshe Rabbeinu, take the same staff that performed the miracle that polluted the water of the Nile and made it undrinkable. Now God is going to provide you with a new source of water which we will see now, will be at Mount Sinai. Verse 6, Pasuk I am standing in front of you, God tells Moshe, by the rock at Chorev, which is another name for Mount Sinai, where Moshe first saw God at the burning bush. And you should hit that rock. And water will come out of the rock, and the people will drink. And Moshe performed this miracle. Moshe did this in front of the eyes of the elders of Israel so that they would go back and tell their people what happened. Notice here that Har Sinai, before it becomes the place where the Torah will be given, first it is a source of water for Amisel to drink from 
before they receive the Torah. This goes back to the analogy of comparing Torah to water. Just like a human being needs water to survive physically, a Jew needs Torah to survive spiritually. Pasuk Zion, verse 7, They call the name of this place in Rafidim, Masaum Riva, Auriv B'nei Yisrael, because of the quarrel between the children of Israel with God, because at that site, they tested God saying, is God in our midst or not? Before we begin the story of Amalek in verse 8, pay attention to what happened here from a geographic point of view. The entire nation is dying of thirst in Rafidim, and Moshe walks with the elders of Israel to Mount Sinai, which seems to be at least one day's walk from Rafidim to Mount Sinai. And it could be this explains why and how we traveled to Mount Sinai. Pretend you were there, and news comes back from the elders, we found water at Mount Sinai. If you're dying of thirst in Rafidim, and you hear that there's water in Mount Sinai, anyone strong and able-bodied is going to run as soon as possible and get to Mount Sinai to bring the water, bring it back to the camp to give drink to those who don't have. But the movement of the camp from Rafidim to Mount Sinai will be very unorganized and almost chaotic. This background is critical to understanding what happens with Amalek. Verse 8, At this point, Amalek comes and attacks and fights Israel in Rafidim. Who's in Rafidim? In Rafidim are all the people who are not strong enough to go to Mount Sinai to get the water, waiting for people to bring water back to them. Who are the strong people? They're all walking to Mount Sinai to get water to bring back to help their brethren. And this can help us understand what's so evil about Amalek. When does Amalek attack? It's not a frontal attack when things are normal. Amalek, throughout Tanakh, we're going to find attacks people unprotected. They don't fight wars like regular nations. Instead, they'll go to the home front when the men are out fighting at the battlefield. Like we see in the story when David is out fighting in battle, the women and children are in the city of Tziklag. Amalek comes and attacks Tziklag. Another proof of this is where Amalek is located. There is no land of Amalek. There's no territorial area, which is their homeland, like Edom and Moab and Mitzrayim and Aram. Those are geographic areas. Amalek is a nomadic tribe, and they dwell along the trade routes, usually in the Negev or in the Sinai. And the way they make a living is by attacking unprotected travelers. In other words, what is so evil about Amalek, the way they make a living is by attacking unprotected people. This is what makes Amalek an enemy of God. They're not necessarily a specific enemy of Am Yisrael, but they're an enemy of all civilization. It's very difficult for civilizations and their economy to prosper if trade routes are being attacked by pirates all the time. Again, I would like to suggest that Amalek is not specifically an enemy of Israel, but an enemy of God. And we, as God's people, have a commandment to fight Amalek, not because they are our enemy, but because they are God's enemy. We need to remember their bad behavior, first and foremost, so we don't act that way. But should we have the opportunity to wipe out this type of phenomena of a tribe of people attacking unprotected people, then it becomes Am Yisrael's responsibility to do something about it if they can. So let's read now in the book of Dvarim, chapter 25, verse 17, better known as Parshat Zachor. Zachor et asher remember what Amalek did to you, on the road or on the way when you left Egypt. This is exactly what we're talking about. In the desert, they attacked us when we were unprotected. Asher korchabaderach, they attacked you on the way. They attacked the tail of your camp, the back of your camp, all the weak people who were left behind. And you were tired and worn out. 
This is an exact description of the journey from Rifidim to Har Sinai, where the weak and the tired are left behind, and the strong, able-bodied people went ahead to get water. This referring to Amalek, Amalek did not have the fear of God. Now, the phrase Yirat Elohim, we find several times in Sefer Breshit, and also in the beginning of Sefer Shemot, and every time we find that phrase, it is in relation to basic human ethical behavior. When King Avimelech asked Avram Avinu, why did he lie about Sarah, his wife? Avram responds, I thought there was no Yirat Elohim. I thought there was no fear of God in this place. When you say there is no fear of God in the city, it means that people are not acting ethically. They're taking advantage of unprotected people. If some traveler comes by, they can just take his wife and kill him, and no one will do anything about it. That type of society has no Yirat Elohim. Later, in the story of Yosef and his brothers, in Sefer Breshit, in chapter 42, First, Yosef accuses his brothers of being spies. He puts them all in jail and tells them, pick one brother to go back and the rest of you remain in jail until you prove your story. And then he has a change of mind after three days and introduces his new plan that all of them can go home and only leave one in jail. And that's introduced with the phrase, et Elohim in chapter 42, verse 18. Yosef tells his brothers, because I'm a God-fearing person, only one of you stay in jail, and the rest of you can go back home. Here again, we see that Yirat Elohim refers to ethical and kind behavior. And Yosef, even though he's hiding his identity, that he's Jewish, but he uses the phrase Yirat Elohim to describe ethical behavior. And finally, the, in the beginning of Sefer Shemot, we were told that Shifra and Pua, they did not listen to Pharaoh's command to kill the newborn males at childbirth and throw them into the river. They had Yirat Elohim, but Yiraneham Yadotet Elohim, they feared God, and they did not listen to that evil command of Pharaoh. The most unprotected person possible would be a newborn baby, and not throwing that newborn baby into the river would be, again, an act of ethical behavior. Recall in Sefer Devarim, there are laws for the nation, are laws about our king and about our judicial system and our economic system and how we go to war. Then God tells us, When God gives you rest from all your enemies around, then you are commanded to wipe out Amalek. What does that mean? The phenomenon of piracy and people attacking unprotected travelers is something that the individual cannot stop. He can only not travel or hire an armed guard. Only nations, only sovereign nations with armies have the ability to wipe out this phenomenon, just like the British Navy was able to wipe out piracy on the high seas in the 18th century. So in a similar manner, Amisro is commanded, once we have rest on all of our borders around, we still have a responsibility to the international community to wipe out this type of behavior of Amalek, and we have to help protect international highways from international piracy. Based on this understanding, wiping out Amalek is not to punish great-great-grandchildren of someone who did evil thousands of years ago, but rather it's to remember this type of unethical behavior, taking advantage of unprotected people. And once we become a nation, we have to do everything in our power as a nation to wipe this phenomena out. Even when we can't wipe it out, we have to remember as a Jewish people like all the commandments to remember in Chumash, to remember our slavery in Egypt so we don't act that way, and remember what happened with Miriam so we don't speak Lashon Hara. All the commandments to remember in Chumash are to remember evil behavior so that we don't act that way. In that context, it's much easier to understand the laws of Amalek for all generations for Am Yisrael. This explains why in Jewish law, the specific commandment to fight Amalek is given to the king, which means it's given to the nation. And the first time we find it implemented is only after we establish the kingdom and after Shaul has defeated his enemies around him. As we read at the end of chapter 14 in the book of Shmuel, 
immediately afterwards, God commands Shaul to attack Amalek. This could also explain why the shalal, why the booty from Amalek is forbidden, because it's taking stolen goods. If someone steals from an unprotected traveler, then you have no right to take those items if you can return it to the original owner. That's best. If not, it belongs to God, but for sure you can't keep it. It is not permitted to take benefit from the looting of Amalek as well. With this in mind, let's return now to chapter 17, verse 9. Moshe tells Yeshua, choose some men and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will be standing at the top of this hill and the staff of God will be in my hand. Why is Moshe telling Yeshua to fight tomorrow? Simply, it's a technical reason because it's going to take a day to organize everyone and travel back towards Rafidim. Pasuk verse 10. Yeshua did as Moshe commanded him to go fight with Amalek. And the leadership group, Moshe, Aaron, and Hor, went up to the top of the hill. Ebenezer claims that this giva is actually Mount Sinai, the same site where they got the water from. But it could be that this is simply a giva, this is a hill near the battlefield, and raising the staff in the middle of the battlefield, as Chazal, as the rabbis understand, is going to be a sign for Am Yisrael to inspire them for the reason to fight Amalek. The rabbis ask the question, are the hands of Moshe going to win a war or lose a war? But they say when Am Yisrael looks at that staff of Moshe Rabbeinu and remember why they're chosen and where they're going to, that would give them the courage to continue the battle and win. If they didn't follow that sign, it would cause them to lose. Verse 11, which explains his point, Vaya, kasher yari Moshe When Moshe would lift up his hand with the staff of God, Am Yisrael would win in battle. And when he would lower his hand, Amalek would be winning. Pasuk Yudbet, verse 12, Vide Moshe Kfedim, Moshe's hands were very heavy. And they took a stone and they put it underneath him and he sat upon it. Aaron on one side and Hor on the other side supported his hands. Each from one side. And his hands were supported until the evening. Emunah here doesn't mean here to believe. Emunah here means to support. For example, when someone makes a blessing and the people answer Amen, it doesn't mean that they believe in God. Rather, they're supporting what the person said. And therefore, in that context, Amen doesn't mean I believe, but it would mean I support you or I agree totally with what you're saying. Pasuk Yud Gimel, verse 13. And Yeshua made Amalek and his people weak with the help of his sword. Or basically, Yeshua was able to win the battle against Amalek. Verse 14, Pasuk Yud God tells Moshe, write down the memory of this event in a book. And also put this in the ears of Yeshua, who's going to be in charge of the army. Because I'm going to erase the memory of Amalek from underneath the heavens. Even Moshe Mizbeach, Moshe builds an altar to God. And names the altar that God is my banner or God did this miracle for me. And Moshe stated, This verse is quite difficult to translate, but if Yad means a memorial, like Yad Af Shalom later on in Tanakh, or later in Sefer Shmuel in chapter 15, when Shaul defeats Amalek, he makes a memorial to celebrate the victory. 
they were told, the Shah was making a memorial and a gathering to celebrate his victory. Here we're told that this will be a memorial to remember the, the throne of God, because God is always fighting this war with Amalek from every generation. In light of this eternal commandment and this eternal war with God against Amalek, it can't be that Amalek is simply something genetic, this one specific group of people who once attacked this many years ago, but rather Amalek becomes a name for this type of behavior that Am Yisrael has to remember not to act that way, first and foremost. And should we have the opportunity and the ability as a nation to wipe out that type of behavior, it's our commandment to do that. If the nation of Israel is chosen to be God's model nation, and when we see someone unprotected or in trouble, it's our job to come out and help, Am Yisrael's behavior is the exact opposite of Amalek's behavior. Amalek is a people or a nation that intentionally takes advantage of unprotected people. Am Yisrael should be exactly the opposite. When we see people in need or someone unprotected, instead of taking advantage of their situation, we have to try and do our best to help them. And that's how we act as God's nation. And therefore, as God's people, God's war with Amalek becomes our war with Amalek for all generations. One concluding thought, as the holiday of Purim is coming up, we associate Haman with Amalek. It could be something genetic coming from Agag, but it could also be something thematic. Recall that the first letter that King Ahasuerus sends out that was composed by Haman was that all the Jews in the Persian Empire on one specific day are totally unprotected. That any citizen of the Persian Empire on that specific day is permitted to attack a Jew, to take his property, and no one will protect them. Therefore, based on this understanding of Amalek, what makes Haman a Malik-type behavior is not just something genetic, it's the very decree that he's giving is typical of a Malik-type behavior where the Jews become an unprotected minority in the Persian Empire. In the second letter, which Mordechai and Esther are able to convince Ahasuerus to send out to undo the first letter, the Jews are now allowed to protect themselves. But the way that we eternally remember these events on Purim is by doing the mitzvot of Mishloch Monot Ishvareu Matonot Levionim. We have to be kind to one another. We have to practice what it means to be thoughtful of people in need. And instead of taking advantage of unprotected people, we have to go out of our way to help them. Shabbat Shalom.